Well, I want to begin this morning by looking ahead to next week and letting you guys know that um, next week we're going to conclude this series that we started the second Sunday of this year that we've been calling the story of the king. And we're going to do that by looking at the death of David as we move into for only one week the book of First Kings, which means that today is the end for us of our study of the Samuel narrative. We come today to the last chapter of Second Samuel, and it is an awesome chapter. And it's not awesome because it tells us yet another thing about David. I think a few of us at least are a little David-weary at this point. But it's awesome because it tells us yet another thing about Jesus. And I just want to pause and go, you know, that's been one of our mantras this year. These stories are not just stories about, well, Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas, and then Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and then Samuel himself, and then King Saul, and then King David, and all the people of Israel who lived, you know, way, 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 way back then, and wow, isn't it interesting, and isn't it cool, and we learn a bunch of new lessons about them. No, that's not it. Ultimately, they're just the vehicle that the Spirit of God is using to enter into my story and into your story and to tell us the story of King Jesus, and incidentally, that's another mantra, King Jesus. As I've said repeatedly this year, and I've said it repeatedly because it's so hard for us to get our hearts and minds around this, Jesus is not an elected representative. He is not a politician. He is not somebody that by means of our vote for a determined period of time, we delegate responsibility over our lives to, and maybe we'll vote for him again as long as we think in our limited estimations that he has served our best interest during the period of time that we've given to him. But if not, well, then we feel free to criticize him, to malign him, to organize around him or against him, and to make donations to other people's campaigns. That's not who he is. As Americans, that's hard for us because that's been what we've grown up with. Jesus is a sovereign monarch. He's the king of the universe. He's not interested in trying to gain our vote. He doesn't look at opinion polls ever. And he doesn't want a donation to his campaign. He's not campaigning. He just, well, he is. King Jesus. These are stories about King Jesus that wrap our little stories up within them. And what we're going to see as we close out our study of the, of the Samuel narrative is that our great God and King, who is Jesus, behaves and speaks at times, okay, that we just, in ways that we just don't understand, and that He then doesn't explain. Never experienced that? Because that's where your story gets a lot like the story that we're going to look at today. So he behaves and he speaks at times in ways that, okay, we don't understand and he doesn't explain. So he doesn't come to us while we're in the midst of one of the ways that he happens to be governing our lives, which all of a sudden also raises all kinds of questions in our hearts and minds, questions about him and his character and his goodness and his power, questions about us and all kinds of things, doubts, fears, you name it. You can relate to that, can't you? He doesn't come to us in the midst of that and say, hey, listen, I I understand that you have some questions. So pull up a chair, and let me explain it to you. No, 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 wait. Let me do for you what you really want me to do for you. Let me give you an explanation for what it is that I am sovereignly putting you through that will justify in the court of your mind and in the court of your heart what it is that I am sovereignly putting you through. Because I don't know about you, but that's what I want. Is that not what you want? 
Lord, you better have a good explanation for this. Okay, I'm not alone. Listen, we come to this story today and we find a great and a wondrous and frankly a very difficult principle. We learn something about our king and something about us. And that is that our great God and king who is Christ behaves and speaks at times in ways that we do not understand, frankly, that we cannot understand, even if he sat down to explain it to us. And that he doesn't sit down to explain to us. But on the other hand, in light of what he has explained to us, in light of what He has revealed to us, in light of what He has written for us in the infinitely precious blood of His Son about who He is, about what He's like, about what His purposes are generally for every one of us, about who we are, about what we're actually like, about what our place is relative to Him, and about everything that He has accomplished for us already and evermore will yet accomplish for us in Jesus. Okay, in light of what He has said to us, which is no small amount of things, we really ought to be able to accept the things that come into our lives that confuse us, that cause us questions, that are painful, and that He doesn't explain. And we ought, as well, to be able to trust Him all the way through them. That, it seems to me, is following our King. That's submitting to the Lord. So we pick up our study today, Second Samuel 21, beginning in verse 1, where we read and just drill into the first verse, that again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Stop, Tom, why was the anger of the Lord kindled against Israel? Answer, I don't have any idea. Neither did Israel. And in fact, get this, they didn't even know that His anger was kindled against them. We know it because it's written down for us. As they experienced it, no clue. And here's why that's so hard to receive. Because as we're going to see in a minute, as a result of this unexplained and unannounced, at least to them, anger of God, 70,000 young men in Israel died. And let me tell you what those 70,000 young men were to them. They were not a numerical figure. They were sons, husbands, fathers, brothers, and friends. Don't let the number get in the way of the face. They weren't numbers to God. They weren't numbers to them. So if we're going to enter into this, really, we need to enter into it. So again, we read that the completely unannounced and unexplained anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And so then, as a result, he, meaning the Lord himself, did what? He incited David to sin. And when you go forward into the book of First Chronicles and you read the parallel account of this story there, you realize that it says Satan incited David to sin. And so the point here is that God uses Satan to incite David to sin. And against whom? Against Israel. But how? By causing David to sin against God. How is that a sin against Israel? He's the king of Israel. There's a corporate solidarity here that we need to respect as we come to this story. We need to realize that for the people of God, for the people of Israel, as go the king, so goes the people. So he incites David to sin against Israel by inciting David to sin against God himself, thus bringing down God's judgment, not just upon David, 
but upon the whole nation of Israel, and here's the sin, saying, go and number Israel and Judah, meaning go and travel to every village, to every town, to every family in the entire nation of Israel, and count up every able-bodied young man capable of serving in the armies of Israel, and then come back and report it. And you say, well, why is that a sin? I mean, that just seems like common sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you were the king of Israel or of anything, wouldn't you want to know how many soldiers you have? Okay, here's my answer. I really don't know. Um, I don't. I I think I do. I have a theory. I'll share my theory in a few minutes, but, but I don't know for sure. And Israel didn't know for sure either because here's what God didn't do. He didn't say, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to give you guys a law and uh, But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to explain my law to you so that I can hopefully persuade you to obey it so that you can look at it and you can feel and hear and just get into the reasoning behind it and you can see and comprehend and understand it and then in the court of your mind and in the court of your heart where you judge me, you can decide whether it's wise or not, whether it's in your best interest or not whether it's life to you, which it is, or not. He doesn't do that. He just comes and says, let me tell you about me. Let me tell you about you. Now, let me tell you what's good for you. Do this, or in this case, don't. So let's just rehearse where we're at. It's confounding. God is angry with Israel, and we and they don't know why. And in fact, they don't even know that he's angry. We do just because we have the story. And so then, as a result of his unannounced and unexplained anger, God, through Satan, incites David to sin. And I understand that he incites David to sin through Satan, but he still incites David to sin through Satan. And he incites him to sin by causing him to break a rule that he doesn't explain. How are we doing so far? Do you work that through this week in your personal worship? So that makes God appear, and appear is a very significant word. It makes him appear, what, good or bad? Probably not so hot. And it also makes him appear as though he is the author, at least of this sin. Does it not? I tremble a little saying that but it makes him appear that way. And so then as a result of this sin that God himself has incited, 70,000 of their sons, husbands, fathers, brothers, and friends die, and they die as a result of the sin that God himself incites, which makes God look unjust. It makes him appear unjust. And then more than that, they die thinking that they're dying as a result of this sinful census of the soldiers that David takes when in fact what stands behind the whole story and ends up resulting in their death is the unannounced, unexplained anger of the Lord in the first place, which means practically speaking that for these people and for that matter, for us, there's never any causal connection established between whatever it was that kindled the anger of God and set this whole thing in motion and the judgment of 70,000 sons, fathers, brothers, friends who die. So you kind of look at that and go, what's the point? Like, they didn't need to die 
to find out that they're not supposed to number their soldiers. They all already knew that. And in fact, when David comes to his commander, Joab, and says, hey, this is what I want you to do, Joab's like, hey, buddy, this is a bad idea. You're not supposed to do this. Everybody knows that you're not supposed to do this. And so now what's going to happen is I'm going to go to all of these villages and all of these towns and all of these families and good grief, what a task that's going to be. And what I'm going to be doing while I'm asking them all of this stuff and numbering up all the soldiers is publishing your idiocy and sin. You really want to go that route? So no connection. Just seems kind of meaningless. Makes it look, at least, like there's no purpose. And, you know, here's what God doesn't do, and He doesn't do it for them or for me and for you in this story. And get this, or in my story or in yours. That's why I love that He doesn't do it in this story, because I can relate to this. He doesn't say, listen, you know what, I, I can tell that this has confused you. I recognize that, you know, maybe there's a missed opportunity for a lesson here. Uh, Here's what I'm trying to do and accomplish, and let me just explain. No, you know what? Forget explaining. Let me give you an explanation that you in the court of your heart and mind can judge me by and find me, God, innocent. He doesn't do that. But here's what he does do, and it's very significant. He comes to us with verse after verse and story after story after story after story that clearly and unambiguously teach us about the Lord our God and that tell us without any question that He is altogether good, that He is altogether purposeful, that He is never, ever under any circumstance in any sense capricious, that everything that He does is good, and not just for Him, but for you and for me and for that matter, everyone else and has ultimate and incredible meaning. It teaches us that he is never in any sense ever the author of any kind of sin, that there's no sin in him, that there's no evil in him, that there's no darkness in him, that there's no deception in him, nothing negative to be found in him and that he is thoroughly and completely and totally and utterly just. And here's what else it tells us, and this is, I think, maybe the most important part of the whole equation, at least in terms of our ability to understand and deal with this story. It also comes to us and says, hey, you know what? Even if you can't figure out how that is, that's still so. So he's coming to me and he's saying, Tom, look, here's the deal. If you can't take all the pieces of the puzzle of this story or all the pieces of the puzzle of your story and figure out how all of these pieces, which look completely incongruous with one another, actually fit perfectly, don't think that that means that I, the great puzzle maker, haven't or cannot designed them in such a way as to make them all Fit perfectly. Good grief, don't limit me to what you can see, to what you can hear, to what you can understand and put together, and then require me to fit that. I want to read to you what the Lord says in Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 8. And notice this, He he declares this, declares the Lord, I love that, But what is he telling us? He's telling us something about himself, and he's telling us something about us. And I love it because he's taking away any surprise. It's sort of like he's coming to me, and he's coming to you and going, okay, so I behave in ways that you don't understand. Like, you're surprised by that? 
that miffs you? That catches you off guard? But didn't I tell you that that's going to be the case? Many places. But let me read you this one. The Lord says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. He's going, hey, I'm not hiding this from you. I'm I'm letting you in on it up front. They are appreciably different. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I want to challenge you to think about that. I want to challenge you to meditate on that. I want to challenge you to take your phone and to shut it off and today to sit down and journal about that. And I know that freaks a lot of people out. And like that's the most controversial part of our personal worship. It's journaling. I've answered more questions about journaling than any other piece of it. We're all different. I get that. We all process information differently. We hear different things. We write down different things. And some of us jot two words. And some of us are long flowing artists. And the rest of us envy you. That's awesome if you can do that. But what are we asking you to do when we ask you to journal? We're asking you to take a passage of Scripture and to interact in such a way as to realize, to interact with it, to understand this is a spiritual, supernatural thing, and to, to call out of it, God, what are you saying? Not just to everybody, but what are you saying to me? So I did that with these two verses, and I, I'm going to read it to you, but what I want you to see is that it's personal. And it's personal because God is personal. (laughs) And God's word is personal. And you know what? I'm personal. And suffering is personal. And my suffering is personal. And so is yours. And here's the deal. It's not just personal to us. It's personal to the Lord. And that too is something that he gives us verse after verse and story after story in the Bible to make abundantly clear to us. He's not disconnected from it. He may not explain it but he's not disconnected from it. My goodness, turn to John chapter 11, and what do you see? You see Lazarus, this man that Jesus loves, and his two sisters, incidentally, also whom it's specifically noted that Jesus loves, and Lazarus is dying, and Jesus is not in town, but he's not far from town. And so they send him note after note and message after message, and they know that he got the notes, and they know that he got the message, and the message is Lazarus is dying, and you need to come right now or he's going to die. And he doesn't come. And he doesn't explain himself. So work through that. Like what kind of questions do you think these people must have had as they're watching Lazarus, or if you're Lazarus, as Lazarus himself is dwindling away knowing that the Lord has gotten the message. He's healing perfect strangers. Here's a man that he loves, does he? Here's two women that he loves, really? He could have come now five times and he hasn't shown up. He doesn't show up until four days after he's buried. That is painful and confusing. All kind of doubts. He shows up in town. Mary, one of the sisters, refuses to go see him. Martha comes out, but only to give him a piece of her mind. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And that is the truth. Jesus shows up in town, having already announced that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead to his disciples. So he's come with the cure. They think it's too late, and it isn't. 
He works in ways that they cannot and that we cannot comprehend, frankly. He's not as limited as we. Nevertheless, even though he knows he's going to fix the problem, when he sees their tears, when he recognizes their confusion, when he feels and sees and experiences the doubts and the questions and the do you love us and all of that stuff that they've gone through, what does Jesus do even though he's about to fix the problem? He weeps. That's the Lord. That's not disconnected. He doesn't explain, but he does weep. The Apostle Paul, before he becomes Paul, is Saul of Tarsus. He's a great persecutor of the church. He made it his life's mission to round up Christians everywhere he possibly could and to torture and to kill them. He's on his way to the Damascus, a city to do exactly that. He's got a whole portfolio of people that he's hunting down. He's got their pictures. He's got, you know, their, all of their statistics and their names and all that stuff, you see, and he's on his way. And then the Lord appears to him in this bright and brilliant blinding light. And what does Jesus say? Here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is confused. Because he's looked over the portfolio, you know? I mean, like, there's no bright light picture guy in here. I I don't even know who you are. Who are you, Lord, he says. And Jesus says, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. That is the kind of connectedness that he has with every one of us who has faith in him. It's personal to him too. But his ways are different, guys. His thoughts are different. They are appreciably higher than anything that we can grasp and comprehend. He sees from eternity past to eternity future. There is not a thing that escapes his notice for anyone or for anything, and his purposes are so multitudinous that if he was to try to download them into our tiny little brains, we would just probably blow up. And he doesn't hide it from us. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So I wrote this. I said, here's what the Lord through these verses I think is saying to me. He's saying, Tom, you are finite, but I'm infinite. You are limited, but I am unlimited. By your very nature, you are incapable of comprehending all of my thoughts and ways and words, and frankly, you cannot reasonably expect to be able to do so. And so then, Tom, there will be things in your life for which you have no explanation, and you need to expect that. Things that make no sense at all, and you should anticipate that. Pain that seems meaningless, pointless, undeserved, and unjust from your itty-bitty, microscopic, puny, infinitesimally small, sin-stained, corrupted, selfish, and immature perspective. The Bible tells you who you are. So then, Tom, if I can just... Say this kindly. Get over yourself and stop arrogantly assuming that I'm as limited as you are and that just because you can't make sense of it, that I won't be able to make sense of it either except the fact that I am God and that you 
are not and stop trying to require me, not merely to explain myself to you, but to justify myself to you. For that is neither right nor good, and that is not your place. Tom, stop with your faithlessness and do what I've called you to do. To trust me even when nothing makes sense. For what is faith? Tom, I've told you. I've given you its definition. I'm not hiding these things from you. I've put them in my word. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, not of things actualized, not of things already in your hands, not of things fully comprehended or completely understood. And faith is the conviction of things not seen as opposed to what you, Tom, in this life can see. And there are plenty of things, my son whom I love, that you cannot and have not yet seen. Things that do, in fact, make sense of my ways and of my words and then also and then also of my mercies, for they too are incomprehensible, and they are incomprehensibly great. And so all of these things that you don't understand, well, they're just things that you need to simply entrust to me. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, because I think he just kind of grabs it all and goes, I'm just going to put this in a sentence for you. He's brilliant. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. You're like, well, what are those? Well, they're everything we don't find out about. They're the, ah, he didn't pull up the chair to tell me stuff. The secret things belong, they belong to the Lord our God, but he hasn't left us without belongings. He hasn't left us without a property in some sense. For he then says, but the things that are revealed, well, they do in fact belong to us and to our children forever. And I think the point here is that what he has revealed to us should enable us really and truly to trust him with what he hasn't and with what he doesn't. So our great God and King, who is Jesus, behaves and speaks at times in ways that we simply do not understand and that he doesn't explain and probably that we wouldn't understand if he did explain. But he hasn't left us without a word. Story after story, verse after verse about who he is, about what he's like, about what his purposes are, about what his mission is, about what it is that he's done for us and is doing for us in and through Jesus Christ. He's given us so much by which to accept the things that belong only to Him, and to trust Him in the midst of it. And so then again we read, 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, that the completely unexplained and unannounced anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And so then as a result, the Lord through Satan incited David to sin against Israel by sinning against God and thus bringing God's judgment down, not just upon David, But the whole nation, as goes the king, goes the nation, and here's the sin again, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. Go travel around every family, every village, every town, every city, and count up every able-bodied man who is capable of serving in my army. That's the idea from David's perspective, which based upon the results must have been a pretty terrible sin because, again, the results are 70,000 who die. And again, we don't know for sure why that is, but I do have a theory, and I'm not alone in this theory. I think it was a terrible sin, first of all, 
because the Bible teaches all the way from beginning to end that our victory and our security does not come in things that we can count. Just doesn't. So David counts soldiers. Let's be honest, we count dollar bills. It's what we count. It's not to be found there, and that's a terrible sin. And secondly, I think it was a terrible sin because it took something as precious as people and reduced them to a numerical figure. And people are not numbers. They're not numbers to God, and they ought not to be numbers to us, and we'd do well to remember that as we count up how many people come here every week. And we'd do well to remember it as well as we look at statistics, as we look at numbers, as we look at percentages of people in this community who are homeless, who are impoverished, who are disadvantaged, and whom God Himself has come to us and said, listen, you have a responsibility toward them as well. It is so much less traumatic to look at a number than at a family sleeping in a car. It's just sterile. It sanitizes it. And so David, in willing obedience to the evil one, gets Joab, his commander, sends him off. Joab argues, king overrules him, go. And Joab travels all throughout the nation. He's counting everybody up and publishing David's stupidity and outright sin in the process to the entire nation. This is an utterly humiliating thing, and it becomes utterly devastating. And we're told in the story that it takes nine months and 20 days for Joab to do all of this, which is fascinating to me because when I thought about that, I thought, you know, that's remarkably similar to a 40-week gestational period for a baby. And maybe that suggests something about the nature of sin, which is that it starts small. It's embryonic in its beginnings. It's just a a little look. It's just a little indiscretion. It's just a little selfishness. It's just a little porn. It's just a little pride. It's just a little, how would you fill in the blank? Because it doesn't stay embryonic. It rapidly grows. And unlike a precious human baby, what it gives birth to is death itself. And those are the options that David is then presented with. God sends the prophet Gad to David. Gad says, you've sinned. And David says, you're right. Gad says, all right, buddy. We've got three options. None of them good. So option number one, three years of famine. Now imagine what that would do. It would empty the land of Israel of food, food equals life, and then it would make you, therefore, reliant upon all of your enemies who surround you, for food, which again equals life. So at the end of those three years, how much do you think you'd have left after bargaining with these guys? Not a good option. Option number two, three months. So it's getting shorter. Three months of fleeing before your enemies, of being overrun by all of the enemies that surround you. And it's not a big piece of land, Israel. Even at David's height, it's not a a, a big piece of land geographically. Three months, they will be overrun completely. Number three, three days of pestilence or disease is the idea at the hand of the angel of the Lord. It's a different hand. It's not the hands of men. That's what they get with options one and two, but it's the hand of God And David chooses option number three, not just because it's shorter. He chooses option number three because he knows about the heart of men. And he knows about the heart of God. He knows in one there is mercy, and in the other he could not reasonably expect any. 
and 70,000 die of pestilence. Not numbers, people that they knew. And then we read, beginning in verse 16, And when the angel of the Lord, who's bringing this destruction to Israel, stretched out his hand toward the capital city of Jerusalem where David lives, to bring its destruction, or to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity. So deliverance comes on the third day, guys. It's a theme. And he said to the angel who was working this destruction amongst the people, he says, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aranah, the Jebusite. Now, why is that significant? I mean, why put that detail in there? That's the same place where Abraham offered Isaac back in Genesis chapter 22. And it's the place where Solomon, the successor to David, will build the temple. It's a very significant site. He's by that threshing floor, and then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel, which is a really terrifying thought, who was striking the people. And he said, behold, I have sinned and and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what, what have they done? Therefore, please let your hand be against me and against my father's house as opposed to against them. What is he doing? Because it's Christ-like. He's coming to God and he's saying, look, take me and spare them. But the problem is that David himself is guilty. David needs somebody to say that for him. That's the idea. It's not a valid offer. And so the Lord leads David to do the next best thing. He says, buy the threshing floor, build an altar. This is where this temple will be built and establish it as the place of animal sacrifice where spotless lambs, perfect lambs are sacrificed symbolically to cover over the blood of of the guilty people of God a practice which pointed toward the true Lamb of God, you see. The one who, when he arrives, is announced as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every lamb that was sacrificed merely was an emblem of the one who would come, the true David and the true king. As go the king, so goes the people. The truly innocent one, who in the mystery of God, And if you know your heart and look into it honestly, if you're really self-aware about, well, you, you recognize, you know, this is pretty incomprehensible, actually. The innocent Lamb of God offering His life as a substitute, as a sacrifice unto death for me and for you. That's who He is. That's who we are. That's what He's done. And You know, we're so tempted all the time to scratch our heads in bewilderment over how it is that he's dealing with us minus a justification. And I wonder, when was the last time you scratched your head in bewilderness over his mercy toward you, over his goodness toward you, over what he has done and evermore will do? So bottom line, our great God and King who is Jesus behaves and speaks at times in ways that, you know, guess what? We do not understand. And he doesn't explain. But he sure has explained a lot of other things. He's revealed a whole lot about who he is and who we are and what he's done for us. And here's walking by faith. Here's following your King. It's saying, you know what? That's enough. Oh, you know what? I can't put the pieces together in such a way as to make it all make sense. Lord, you tell me you can. 
and I trust you with that. Not only ought we to be able to do that, we really must. So I want to close by asking you guys a couple of questions. Number one, what are you demanding that God explain to you, and and not just explain, but justify to you, that you have no business demanding God to explain or to justify to you? What secret things that belong to the Lord do you need to to give back to Him? (laughs) Say, you know what? (sighs) Here, I'm just going to trust you with this no matter what comes next. Two, what are you trusting in as a substitute for your trust in God? And is it something you can count? And if it's money, here's how you can tell. You can just go, all right, Lord, am I obedient to what you call me to do in the area of my finances and worship? It's like a quick answer question. Bam, you know the answer. Like, do I tithe, Lord, the way that you call me to do? Because he talks about it in the Old Testament and he talks about it in the New. I mean, Jesus, for all of his criticisms of the Pharisees, commends them at least for their scrupulousness in this one area. Do I hold it with an open hand or do I cling to it? Am I generous with the poor or am I not? Is it, in fact, my victory, my security, and my life, or is it not? Question three, what people in your life have become little more than numbers to you as you kind of look at it, you know? Because they're people. They're people to the Lord and they're precious as a result. And lastly, do you personally know His incomprehensible grace because there's an innocent king who has offered willingly in love and in mercy His infinitely valuable life to rescue all who believe in Him, who claim His forgiveness, and who come to Him recognizing that by doing that, they're not electing Him for four years. They're saying, here, here's my life. And how much time have you spent lately scratching your head in bewilderment over that? Take Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Journal on that. Just do it. It's all right. You can do it. Nobody's going to grade your paper. Oh, that was stupid. I can't believe you wrote that down. This guy's a terrible journaler. Obviously, you need a tutor, you know? It's intentional. You can read it and check it off your list each day. Or you can actually come to it expecting that God's going to say something to you in it and so expecting that you take notes. You did that in class. And journal about His ways, His thoughts. And not just about all the questions that you have that He hasn't yet answered, but also meditate and reflect on all the wonderful things that He has revealed to you and all the wondrous and incomprehensible, frankly, things that He's done for you in Jesus. All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank You that um, You are beyond, frankly, uh, our ability to comprehend. Lord, that You exceed our limitations For we have problems that in our limitations we cannot fix. We cannot solve. We are in a quandary if we are, all of us, including you, limited to our abilities and to our capacities. We come today to the God who transcends it all, transcends all of us. 
and who doesn't hide his transcendence from us, who thinks in ways we do not think, who behaves in ways that we cannot comprehend. And Lord, for those things, we are thankful. Give us your grace in our questions. Lord, give us faith to entrust to you the things that, you know, belong to you anyway. And to satisfy ourselves, God, indeed, to feast upon the things that you have given us and have revealed to us those things that inspire our faith and nourish our souls and strengthen us in this life and shepherd us to the one to come. Do these things we ask for your goodness and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.